We'll begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, grant to your church your Holy Spirit and the wisdom that comes down from above, that your word may be not be bound, but have free course and be preached to the joy and edifying of Christ's holy people, that in steadfast faith we may serve you, and in the confession of your name abide unto the end. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So that, that's a good prayer uh, for what we're talking about, that the gospel may have free course and that uh, the people of the church may abound uh, in the confession of the faith until the end. Um, we're talking about church history. <coughs> Excuse me. And last week we just barely began this discussion, but... If you remember what we talked about with the liturgy, that the liturgy is in church history like this snowball that starts with the seed of the core of worship from Acts 2, right? So you got the preaching of the apostles, the uh, prayers, the breaking of the bread and the fellowship, and then the liturgy in the church here kind of snowballs around that throughout history to deliver to us uh, what we have as Christian and and as Lutheran worship today. And the fact that something like that has been preserved is a beautiful thing, right? That uh, this is the way that God designed his church to persevere, not just the liturgy, um, but the doctrine, right? The Christian faith or also the Bible, uh, right? That these gifts that give to us the Christian faith have been preserved throughout history. And that's a wonderful thing. So uh, that it's worth studying, right, what happened during the course of the last 2,000 years that we have what we have, right? And why, um, why things happened the way they did. And that it can also help inform us today uh, where... We should what one what what some of the errors we should watch out for right uh, a lot of times history can teach us uh, common errors that people fall into when reading the Bible or studying the Bible um, but it can also show give us an appreciation for the richness of what we have right that uh, things have been we don't have to reinvent the wheel in other words right that we have we we stand on the shoulders of giants we've been handed such amazing gifts from history, whether it's the early church fathers um, and the beauty of some of the uh, analogies that they drew in scripture, or if it's Martin Luther and his steadfast confession of the gospel, or um, what whatever exa- historical example it is, these saints from of old have passed down to us wonderful gifts. So... Um, and we can also see where we fall in line with that too, right? That, uh, like, when we stand where we stand in the course of history, we're not crazy, right? We're, 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 not, we're not some new religion or new cult that's never existed before. We're part of a train that's existed for a very long time. So anyway, all of that to say, um, we're on page 288 in the Lutheranism 101 book, if you have, if you have that book with you and share with your neighbor um, as well. Uh, but we just want to go bird 10,000-foot view, bird's-eye view of church history. Uh, we started this last week, but we'll kind of just 
go ahead and repeat some of what we did last week for the sake of review. Uh, but we're starting, uh, we, we start in this apostolic age, what the, the book calls the apostolic age um, from, what does it say, 3 BC? Yeah, 3 BC to 100 AD, which if you think about it, this is the time of the apostles, right? So um, John probably dies around the year 100. Christ is born uh, around the year 3 BC. And so this is the time of Jesus and the apostles. Um, this this hundred year, this one century, uh, the first century AD, um, as as you may remember uh, from from school a long time ago, and AD means Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. So sometimes you hear that. All right, yeah, we just learned that in Latin recently. So uh, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Um, Isn't it another one? AED or A? Yeah. So they they de-Christianize these in some modern textbooks uh, to be uh, BCE and okay. CE, which is before the Common Era and then Common Era. Uh, um, but that's oh, I never seen that. yeah, it's it's silly. That's um, that was kind of when I was in like high school and stuff. That was kind of like coming into textbooks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, but we still we're Christian, so we still use BC uh, before Christ and AD on a Domini. Um, but you can think of that that helps you remember, right? That what this this first age is the this first century is the century that Christ lived in, right? And um, th- this is there is this new start here, right? So the Old Testament, I always make the point that the Old, Old Testament Christianity was Christianity, right? From, uh, you know, 6,000 BC or whatever it, it is, you know, 4,000 BC, it, where, wherever in there you want to date it, uh, to, to this time, to the time of Christ, there was Christianity, right? The Lord had given the promises of the Messiah to Adam and Eve, and those promises uh, were believed and held to and revealed in the Old Testament all the way until the time of Christ. But there is a change here, right? That when we normally talk about church history, we're talking about New Testament church history, right? We In uh, Bible class on Sunday morning for the last couple of years, we've been covering Old Testament church history. But um, there, there is a fundamental change here in that the gospel now is really going to drive, and the mission of the gospel, um, it's no longer waiting for Christ to come. Christ has come, and now the mission of the gospel is going to drive history in a certain way. And you can see this especially if you read the book of Acts. Um, When you read the book of Acts, you get the story of Paul's missionary journeys. Um, But in the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1, what's the, uh, the command given? The command is given that the gospel should go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? Beginning from Jerusalem. And uh, that the apostles, these in this era of the apostles, they're going to be his witnesses to get that ball rolling, right? Or you can also think about the Great Commission, uh, to go, therefore, to all nations, <laughs> baptizing them and teaching them all that, they, that Christ has commanded. And so this New Testament church history it's driven by the gospel, 
right? And if you read the book of Acts, like I was just saying, the main character in the book of Acts is not Paul. It's actually the gospel, right? The gospel itself is the main character in the book of Acts. And that's what's going to drive what we're talking about when we talk about church history is what's happening with the gospel, right? And is the gospel being, um, as we prayed earlier, is the gospel having free course or is it being persecuted in some way, right? So um, that's the apostolic age. So again, uh, you know, Jesus is born 3 BC. He dies in 33 AD, is risen again from the dead, ascends into heaven. And uh, when he ascends into heaven, uh, he sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit at Pentecost then drives this mission of the gospel to go forth. And you have the apostles starting churches in Judea and Samaria. And, and then Paul begins going on his missionary journeys. And very soon after that, you have the spread of the gospel throughout the um, throughout the Near East, really. Okay. So then we have uh, the what we call the early church um, from 100 to 312, and that 312 date's important, as we'll get to in a minute. But uh, as the the book says here, right by by 100 A.D., most of the eyewitnesses who had met Jesus had died. But the church continued to grow both in the number of believers in the area of the world which the gospel had spread. Early Christians faced persecution by both Jewish and Roman leaders. Many early Christians refused to deny their faith, even when faced with violent deaths. Okay, so that's, there's two things we want to talk about here. One, um, as I was kind of making the point last week, I think it's important to look at the early church. Why is it important to look at the early church? Well, because this is the church that comes. Um, so, of course, we have all the information we have in the Bible from the apostolic age. We can see what people in the Bible were doing in the early church. And that's important, right? Especially when we read like the book of Acts or uh, we can draw some conclusions from different of Paul's epistles and such. But um, when we get outside the Bible and we want to know, OK, what? What's the historic tradition, right? What's um, what have Christians done throughout the centuries, and especially in the case of the early church, what were Christians doing? How were Christians being Christian? How were they living? How were they worshiping? What doctrines did they hold to? What was the kind of their system of interpreting the Bible? Um, this is the generation right after the apostles. Right? This is the generation trained by the apostles, right? So you have the, the apostles who uh, you know, found these different churches. So say you got James in Jerusalem or something like that, right? Then uh, what are the people who were trained by James and John and Paul? Uh, what are they, how are they worshiping, right? And what are they, what are they writing about? And that's, a, that's an important question because that... Um, really gives us some insight into what the apostles uh, likely taught and did themselves, right? That they learned from Jesus. Um, we have to we have to be honest with ourselves, I think, it's, you know, a lot of times that when it comes to a number of different things in church, the Bible is not exactly 100% clear, right? Now, the Bible is clear about what it does talk about, 
the Bible's clear about, um, you know, that the Lord's Supper needs to be celebrated, and it's clear about what the Lord's Supper is, but it's not exactly clear, you know, did they have a communion rail, right? Uh, did they distribute the host first or the wine first, right? Things like that. Um, now we can infer some things. Even how often. Yeah, or exactly how often. Um, I mean, I think you can infer some of these things. Like, you can definitely infer that, like, on the Lord's Day, they were breaking bread. That's what it seems like. But um, there are things that are just not, we're not exactly told, right? Um, And so one of the things that we do, instead of trying to, again, like I said earlier, reinvent the wheel when it comes to all these questions about how we're going to do church um, and how we're going to live as Christians together, we can look in history. And the first, and it's the one of the first places to go is, of course, to that generation right after the apostles, right? So, for instance, in the early church, you get this book called the uh, Didache. I've, I think I mentioned this last week, which is a part of an early church um, collection of early church documents. And the Didache is kind of this church manual, um, and it's right around the year 100. It's very early. And they talk about when you do a baptism uh, that the preferred practice was cold running water, right? But if you you didn't have uh, running water, that was still okay. Okay, so that's uh, that. That's not exactly how we do baptisms today, but and we can see kind of how baptisms have changed from that time, and we can uh, just start to think through some of those things, right? So, um, it, or an, another example of this would be like biblical interpretation, right? Well, you gotta you gotta have some kind of system of how you're going to approach the Bible and how you're going to interpret it, right? Because as you know, there are lots of different ways and lots of different interpretations of the Bible. Well, a, a lot of the early church, um, they weren't really afraid to draw analogies or use um, or use more metaphorical interpretations, right? They weren't focused so much on uh, only describing the absolute literal meaning, but they would look at a story like uh, the uh, Exodus at the Red Sea, for instance, and focus a lot on baptism, right? Now, the Bible doesn't really uh, specifically say that the Red Sea is about baptism. It does say that about uh, Noah and the Ark in 1 Peter, but it doesn't specifically talk about the Red Sea and baptism. But the early church was very big on this kind of allegorical interpretation, Right, a lot of the early church was. And um, then later on in the Enlightenment, much later on in church history, did we get a more of a focus on kind of literal interpretation um, or like very, very like uh, grammatical interpretation. And so you have these differences in church history, right? And it's good to kind of think about that and think, okay, well, maybe we can have a, a balance here, or kind of a mixture of those things. So um, those are just some examples, but... Uh, the early church is helpful to look at to see, okay, how were the the earliest Christians 
that weren't in the Bible, how were they doing, church, right? And it's not that they couldn't have erred, right? They definitely could have. Um, they, they were sinners just like us. Um, and they were figuring things out for the first time too, right? But it is interesting to think uh, of what they did. The other thing to think about the early church, we talked about this last week, I know, is the persecution they faced, right? It was trial by fire um, that the, the martyrs were uh, the, really the primary witnesses to the rest of the world, right? That there were people willing to die and that they had confidence in the blood of Christ that they were going to be raised again. Um, and so both, uh, as the book notes, and I think this is an important detail, they faced persecution both by Jewish and Roman leaders, right? So just like Jesus was um, basically persecuted by the Jews and then handed over to the Romans to be crucified, that's what was happening in the early church, right? These, the certain sects of, of Judaism uh, did not want to accept the Messiah. They wanted to reject the Messiah. And so they they would report um, Christians, you know, to the Romans and say, hey, look, these these Christians, they're, they don't bow down to Caesar, right? They don't worship the Roman gods. And uh, that, was, that was a huge problem in the early church. So they're still denying. Yeah, and, and modern-day Judaism never repented, right? Um, that that's That is a... That is true. All right. So then um, that's the early church. And we, so that kind of catches up that as a little bit of review as well. Um, but that gets us up to 312. And um, we'll just call this uh, kind of Constantinism or Constantine. And um, there's, an, there's an in there, Constantine. Um, <coughs> And Constantine comes around in 312. Now, Constantine is a Roman uh, emperor. And in 312, it's an important year because Constantine is the first emperor to stop persecuting the Christians and to be converted himself to Christianity. And um, Constantine does a whole number of things. It's a whole deep history that we don't have time for for this bird's eye view. But the important thing, though, is that Constantine... uh, converts to Christianity, and he and that not only makes Christianity legal, um, but makes it then the preferred religion of the Roman Empire, right, uh, over time. So um, as the book points out, he even eventually makes Sunday a public holiday, right? Now, at this point then, this is good for Christianity, obviously, because they're not being persecuted, but this also allows them to... Uh, we got some important dates here. Um, in 325, they have the Council of Nicaea. So um, one of the things that Constantinianism, Constantinianism, I can say that, the kind of era in the church um, where Christianity is now legal, it allows them to do is to publicly meet together and work through. Uh, issues that are happening in the church. So you have these bishops from all over the place, right? You got a bishop in Rome, you got um, a bishop in Alexandria, you got, uh, you know, a bishop in Jerusalem, you got all these different bishops. And they come together and 
they talk about what's going on with Christianity in their regions. And uh, the first uh, major of these councils that, that we talk about a lot today, there's um, in the early church there ends up being seven ecumenical councils, um, but we'll only mention a few of them, uh, one of which, and I, I want to say it's the actually like the second or third council, you actually have a the, – the earliest council is recorded in Scripture in Acts 15. You have the, the council at Jerusalem, the Jerusalem council, where um, they discuss the issue of if whether or not Christians need to be circumcised. All right? um, so that's the first council. I would say Nicaea is the second or third council. Oops. But at Nicaea, uh, that, that word should sound familiar to you because we have the – the Nicene Creed. Okay, so the Nicene Creed is first drafted here at the Council of Nicaea, and um, there was a problem in the early church called Arianism uh, by this teacher Arius. So, in order to counter the false teachings of Arius, 300 pastors met at the Council of Nicaea and came up with a statement of belief about the Trinity and the two natures of Jesus Christ, both God and man. And what the what Arius was teaching was that Jesus was created by God, right? Not that he was the only begotten Son of God. And so you have in the Nicene Creed, right? You have that phrase um, of the same substance of the Father, mm-hmm. and that was the big debate at Nicaea. It, it sounds uh, like a very small thing, but basically the debate came down to these two Greek words. Um, homoousius, which is of the same substance, or homoousius, which is of similar substance. So basically it came down to one letter, if there was a I in there or not. And uh, that's what the 300 pastors at Nicaea debated about, right? Because this is... Arianism teaching that uh, Jesus is only like God but is not truly God, and this is Christianity teaching that Jesus is God, right? So um, a big, a very important detail onto whether or not that I was included in that in that word, um, and Je- this is, I think, partially why Jesus said not a not a dot or a yoda will be. <laughs> will pass away. It's literally a Yoda that they were fighting over. Anyway, um, but this happens in 325, right? And this is where the um, first part of the Nicene Creed comes from, is this this Council of Nicaea. There were also other things that happened that, that they discussed at the Council of Nicaea. But, um, but that was possible because uh, Constantine uh, was in charge and was able to, to let these discussions happen, right? So... Um, that's that is the the downside of eras of persecution is that there can't be public debate about Christianity in this sense, right? So persecution is good for the church in that it's refining. It's bad for the church uh, in in other ways, let's say. So all right. Um, so then we have uh, 380. Um, and uh, the book points out Theodosius here, um, 
who is the new emperor uh, after Constantine, and he declared he's also Christian. He declares that Christianity now is the only acceptable religion uh, in the Roman Empire, right? So this is this is great for for Christianity in that way as the the gospel continues to spread. Um, I also I'll, I'm also going to point out that in 381, this isn't in the book, but in 381 you have um, another council, the Council of Constantinople. Constantinople. Sorry, that's an N right there. Um, Constantinople, and uh, this is an, uh, the one of the councils that follows the Council of Nicaea, and this is actually where the Nicene Creed was uh, finalized. So uh, at the Council of Constantinople, they really dealt more instead of about whether or not Jesus is. Um, God, God, they dealt more with the two natures in Christ, that Jesus is both God and man. And um, so that that's what they dealt with there. But it was actually at the Council of Constantinople that they kind of finished out the Nicene Creed, and then it got finalized into its final form today. So really when we say the Nicene Creed today, we actually say the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. But... We don't call it that because that's obnoxious. So um, we just call it the Nicene Creed. But that's 381. You know, the thing about it is this. They were able to get together and come to all these conclusions. Right. About really, I'm pretty sure they had issues, but not so major they, they couldn't agree. Right. And what's interesting is all the way up until, um, well, we'll get there to um, 1054. <laughs> Hopefully this is about the right spot on the board. Um, 1054 is the Great Schism. There's really only one denomination until 1054. There's just the church. right? So for the first thousand years of the church, um, there was really only one denomination. And uh, 1054 is when you get the split between East and West. Uh, it's called the Great Schism. So it's uh, pretty, pretty interesting, right, that now we ended up with now we end up with you know probably literally a thousand denominations if not mm-hmm. you know definitely hundreds. So uh, but the Catholic Church didn't come into being until 1054. How did they say that Saint Paul was the first Roman? Well, they say that they that the Western Roman Church that Rome was always the capital of Christianity basically. Which there is a truth to that. Like, as you can see, the Roman Empire is kind of the seat of Christianity in the early church. Um, but they they basically say that was the Roman Catholic Church. And then the East split away. Right. So that's how they say that. Yeah. And that, yeah, Peter was the first bishop of Rome. So that that's how they get they get to that. Okay, so then uh, in 400, uh, we have the Vulgate Bible, which is a Latin translation of the whole Bible. And uh, that was done by, by St. Jerome. And um, again, that, that's actually made the standard version of the Bible um, as uh, Greek had fallen way out of popularity by now. And so this is actually an interesting thing is that the when the bible was printed in the as the vulgate it really became in some way the common man's bible like that that more people than ever could read it mm-hmm. 
because it was in Latin. And um, at this time, they, uh, the early church also declared um, Latin to be the lingua ecclesia or the language of the church. Um, and that's why so much of our liturgy has like when we went through the liturgy, right, it had Latin names for things. Um, that is a lot of the history of the church, right? So Latin is good in this way, um, is that it put it in a language that kind of everyone in the Roman Empire could use, right, to some degree. Now, that actually ironically gets reversed in the late Middle Ages where only the priests know Latin and no one else does, right? So um, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. But uh, the purpose of the Vulgate was not to hide the Bible from people. It was actually to make the Bible more usable. So for whatever uh, that is worth. So before that, it was all in Hebrew. Uh, it was in – so the the original languages of the Bible are Hebrew and Greek. So the Old Testament's in Hebrew and the New Testament's in Greek. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, and it was – yeah, it was in those languages. And then you can even see that idea of making the Bible accessible to people in the Greek that it was written in. So Jesus and his disciples probably spoke Aramaic, which was a more obscure language. But they wrote the Bible in Koine Greek specifically, not even classical Greek. Koine Greek was like common man's Greek. It's like simple Greek. And uh, they wrote it that way so that it could be read and preached by everybody. Right. So, um, yeah, uh, throughout the history of the church, the goal of most people who handle the Bible well, I think, is to make it accessible to people. Right. That's what that's what Luther does later on. So. Um, he's well within his tradition uh, in, the, in that tradition of, of making the Bible accessible. Okay. All right, so then uh, we get 431 and 451. We get the more councils, the councils of uh, Ephesus and Chalcedon, um, where, uh, again, we get these, a lot of these discussions are about the Trinity, right? Many bishops and pastors meant to counter false teachings about the nature of Jesus, uh, the councils reaffirmed the Nicene Creed that accurately summarized the Christian understanding of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These councils also emphasized, um, just like Constantinople too, that Jesus has two natures, divine and human, in one person. There were a lot of uh, heresies that popped up in the early church about both the Trinity and about the two natures of Jesus. Right. So um, that, that's the hot topic of the day. And, and, you know, someone told me recently, actually, that um, there's some new – well, like there's always been some kind of anti-Trinitarian people around, right? So you have like the – today you have like the oneness Pentecostals, stuff like that. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses are, are basically the Arius of today, right? They they believe Jesus was created. Um, you. So, some, what was it that someone told me? Someone told me recently that there's a new like within the even like within American evangelicalism, like in like non-denominational churches, um, something about like denying the divinity of Jesus is like becoming popular. But it's like a new they got like a new name for it anyway. I don't know, but these things do pop up again. So it's a, this is one of the reasons why confessing the creeds is important. Is that um, it puts us in line with 
things that have been dealt with before, right? As I was saying earlier, like the part of the development of doctrine in the in the Christian church, um, as we draw it from from scripture, of course, is to learn how through the work of the history of the church to learn how to reject false things, right? Um, because you know, basically, what happens is right. The the scriptures say what the scriptures say, and then um, someone comes along and and people are preaching, and then someone comes along and has some new interpretation that goes outside the bounds of scripture, and then the the church has to get together and say, oh, okay, wait, how do we how do we deal with this, right? And how do we argue against this? Um, and and is this what scripture teaches? And is it not what scripture teaches, right? Someone. Someone says something that's weird, and then we got to test it, right? Paul and Paul encourages this. Paul says, um, right, test every spirit, right? And if anyone preaches to you a gospel uh, different than the gospel that you've been that you've been taught, uh, to 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 reject it, right? To um, to turn it away. And so, um, you know what, Pastor? Yeah. I hear a lot of people say, "Oh, I believe in God." Right. And you know what I say to them? But do you believe in Jesus Christ? Right. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because just right. because you say I believe in God, it right. doesn't mean that you believe in Jesus Christ. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, you know, a lot of people today say that they're, what do they say? They, they say they're spiritual, right. yeah. but not, not religious. religious. Not yeah. religious. Um, and this idea is, I mean, we can talk a lot about this, but I think part of this idea is to reject church history. Right. Mm-hmm. It's to reject the idea that anyone has ever come before me and has something to teach me. Right. Um, and it, it it's just I'm going to I'm going to figure it out on my own and I don't need any any help. I don't need any uh, one to teach me. And that's that's just ridiculous. Right. Um, and and I, I don't mean that in like a just a derogatory way, like, oh, that's just ridiculous. I mean, it, it is literally ridiculous in anything. To think that you shouldn't learn from those who came before you, right? So take take any subject, take woodworking, right? If um, I just stand there with a a tree and some ore and some steel, how long or like some some things to make steel, I know some ore or whatever. Uh, how long is it going to take me to come up with a saw and how to figure out a dovetail joint, right? It's going to take me thousands of years because that's how long it took to come up with those things, right? There's no there's no reason to start at square one, right? Um, and that's not how God worked it out. He, he worked it out uh, that he would reveal himself to prophets and that those prophets would write things down and that then... People would read and preach and and uh, understand those things, right? And that then from there the history of the church would go forth, and that he would send his son at this time in history, and that his son would minister and preach and um, ascend and die and rise again and ascend into heaven. This is how God worked it all out, right? He worked it out in history, right? Um, and that this is why we say in the creed, right? For instance, um, whenever we we say the creed. We have that line in there that's like, well, that's not that important, but it is important that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, right? Why do we say under Pontius Pilate? 
Not because Pilate is like... It puts it in history. Yeah, more special than any other, you know, Roman governor of any other time. It's because it puts it in that point in history, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And in that place, right? So anyway, to say you're spiritual but not religious is... um, it's like, well, yeah, every, everyone is spiritual. Everyone has a soul. Everyone has spiritual thoughts. Of course that's true. Um, but uh, the, what's also true is that everyone actually has a religion too, right? Uh, no, no matter how hard you try, you're going to come up with some answers to the questions of who made this place? Where did I come from? What's my purpose in life? You're going to come up with those kinds of answers, and you're going to come up with those kind of answers from listening to other people and from learning from the past, right? Um, so to pretend like somehow I as an individual am completely separate from history and the world around me, and I can just kind of have my own thing with whatever spirituality is out there, it, it truly is a, a somewhat ridiculous notion. Um, anyway, okay, so... Get off my soapbox. Um, well, it's because everybody believes something. Right. They may not think about it every day, or you know, as often as people like us whose lives center our, our the church and our religion is part of our everyday life. But they believe something. That's why there's really no so saying is there is a non-denominational church because they all have to believe something. Yeah, they all have some they set of beliefs, right? Giving it a name or mm-hmm. uh, creeds and things like that. So uh, people say they're not religious, but they are. They have to. Right. They believe yeah. something. You got to answer the questions, right? right? The questions are are weighing upon you, and uh, you have to answer them in some way. Mm-hmm. So why not why not just accept that, right? And then you can work uh, through history, partly, and through the people around you, and and through the through the Bible, and uh, actually deal with those things. So, all right. So uh, then we get to 1054, the Great Schism. Um, so we got about 500 years there, where um, Christianity is 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 basically expanding, right, and it's growing. And uh, things are are good um, for the most part, right? And uh, we get uh, some of the the early Middle Ages there as well that are happening. I'm going to try and kind of fill in the gaps here, but um, in those early Middle Ages, uh, you get a lot of great thinkers, right? Um, the this idea of scholastic theology, um, so. Uh, I'm trying to remember, make sure I get all my dates correct, but this idea of scholastic theology where we're going to um, really work at systematizing belief based on the scriptures kind of growing out of these creeds um, really begins in this kind of 500 to 1,000 period. And you, you, get a lot of, um, you get a lot of big Western development happening too. Right. Does anyone remember what the what year Charlemagne is? I'm trying to remember. Anyway, you get that that uh, I think it's somewhere in there. You get kind of um, this growth in like 
you know, Western, the Western world developing libraries and theological studies and um, trying to kind of organize the, these systems of belief uh, for the church um, at this time, right? So very interesting. All right, then, then in 1054, what happens um, is the uh, Western Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, so you have uh, really throughout this church history, you kind of had things happening more in the West and, and a little more in the East. Well, uh, these two churches end up splitting around 1054, um, partly over a new disagreement that arises in the Nicene Creed. So um, in that, in the Nicene Creed, we have the phrase, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the Eastern theologians take issue with that phrase, and the Son, and they say the Holy Spirit only proceeds from the Father but not the Son, um, which we can talk about uh, why they kind of believe that. It's um, based on very particular interpretation of, you know, certain passages in the Bible, of course. But, you know, the the idea between and the Son is, of course, Jesus says in John's Gospel when he's talking about the Holy sending the Holy Spirit, he says, "I'm going to, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Holy Spirit will come down from above," and so. We just take that to mean, yeah, the, the Holy Spirit's also proceeding from the Son. And the Eastern Church said it wants to be more technical about it, basically, um, and say that, well, the Holy Spirit only proceeds from the Father, um, but is sent by the Son. So it's kind of a weird distinction. Again, there there's reasons to care about it, but most of, in my in my opinion, it's kind of a fight not worth having, but... Regardless, they had the fight, but also they fought over whether or not priests should uh, be allowed to marry. And the Eastern Church said priests should, yeah, of course priests can marry. And the West at this time, um, the Western ch- is this is the time when the Western Church starts to develop its theology of why priests shouldn't be married. And um, it's pretty clear biblically that the pastors are married, right? So, uh, like, even. Um, Actually, I don't know how the Roman Catholics get around this, um, but in uh, Mark's gospel, I believe it is, Jesus visits the mother-in-law of Peter, right? Mm-hmm. So he's obviously married. Um, you also have in like Paul writing to uh, Timothy says that hus- that pastors should be the husband of one wife, right? Mm-hmm. Like obviously they, they were married. So um, the... Roman Catholic Church does this out of an extreme amount of piety um, that they are very concerned about the that so so basically what happens is due to some pietistic theology in the early Middle Ages the view of the Roman Catholic Church at that time is basically that sex is a necessary evil <laughs> like it's it's bad, like it's it's okay within a marriage because we have to reproduce the population, but it's generally a sinful thing. Um, and they're very concerned about lust. This is also when you get the development of monasteries, of course, um, 
some of these things happening. And so this theology develops that that priests, since priests are supposed to be like the best Christians or something like that, um, that's not, of course, what we hold, but that they they think priests should just just stay away from marriage, and that has, of course, caused them many problems um, in the last uh, thousand years. But um, anyhow, that's that's what happens. So the East and the West split. And so then you basically have two denominations um, for the next 500 years or so. Okay. Now, uh, what happens after that? And uh, we get the years 1095 to, excuse me, it's my, um, 1261 is uh, the Crusades. Now, the Crusades are pretty massively misunderstood, I think, but. Um, We'll just read what the book says here. Many Christians in Europe felt that going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem would prove their faith and make God pleased with them. When Islamic Turks took control of Jerusalem, many Christian lands believed they should fight a holy war to regain Jerusalem for Christians. That's kind of true. And the book, I think, is trying to sugarcoat it, right? But um, I don't think it actually really needs to be sugarcoated because – um, I, th- I think we're just too sensitive as modern people in some sense uh, to think that there's no such thing as a just war. Um, there is such a thing as a just war um, for self-defense. And in the same way that if someone breaks into your home in the middle of the night, you can defend yourself, right? Well, a lot of what was happening in the Crusades is Christians were defending themselves against Turks that were trying to kill them, Right. Um, the other thing about the Crusades is that very, very few people died in the Crusades. The Crusades is made out to be this big thing, um, but basically it was like just a few battles here and there, um, and like way more people died in the American Civil War than ever died in the Crusades. Um, and and you also got to keep in mind in ancient wars, uh, you know they didn't have modern they didn't have guns yet, so. Um, there are a lot like warfare is a, is a lot more primitive and um, I mean it's definitely deadly right but the movies make it out to be you know these massive battles you know m- you know thousands of people died and oh those those terrible Christians you know going out and killing everyone um, that's just not how it was um, yeah Yeah, they didn't have tanks though. They just had swords. Um, I'm saying that they did have tanks back then. Yeah, that's I guess that's true. Um, all right, so that's the Crusades. Uh, you also have the Inquisition. It's happening. Uh, so reacting to religious teachings that did not agree with the church's doctrine and traditions, church courts were created to root out and punish heretics. There were several Inquisitions at different times and in different places. Um, again, I just want to point out we're much more sensitive as modern people. Um, back in the day, people just took care of business, right? Um, and if there was a heretic in the church, uh, they wanted them out of the church, right? Um, and, you know, certainly things could have been done better at different times uh, than they were done. You know, we're all tainted with sin. But... Um, you know, some things are right and salutary, right? Like even today, we do practice church discipline, 
right? We, we don't allow people who are living in open sin to take communion. And um, we do excommunicate people if they uh, remove themselves from the fellowship of the church. So um, a, a lot of times things like the Crusades and Inquisitions, I just want to point out those things are massively blown up in, in Hollywood uh, as to what they actually looked like and, and what they actually were. Um, but most of the time it's people behaving like people. So that is what it is. All right. So then we get up into the late Middle Ages, and which gives us in, into the Reformation. And we're going to talk a lot more about the Reformation, so we don't need to go into too much detail about this. Uh, but kind of beginning in 1517, which is the year that Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Cross. And of course, uh, you remember... Um, just we just came up on 500 years, you know, back in 2017, of that. Uh, the Reformation started to happen, so you could kind of see it with the Great Schism that the marriage of priests. Well, over the next 500 years, the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church got worse and worse. And uh, Martin Luther came to. I'm just going to read some of this. Martin Luther came to realize that several teachings of the Roman Catholic Church did not fit what he read in the Bible. He tried to start a discussion that would find and fix what had gone wrong. Okay, I want to pause there. So Luther is trying to do, this is my big point about the Reformation. Luther is trying to do something that is very normal, right? Go back to Nicaea, right? Go back to Constantinople or to the other uh, to the other councils. Word left me for a second. Luther is just trying to discuss issues in the church. That's why he posts the 95 Theses. He sees some things that are wrong. He's like, let's have a debate. Um, this was a very normal thing in the 1500s in academia is that someone would present a list of theses and then they would have a public debate about those theses. And people would provide counter theses and then there would be uh, logical arguments for each thesis that the debaters would go through, right? This would be kind of fun if we actually had a presidential debate like this, right? Okay, here is a thesis. Let's now give, each person has to give logical arguments as to why they agree or don't agree with it. That would be nice. That, that's not happening. Okay. Well, it also didn't happen for Luther, okay? Luther tried to do that, um, and the Roman Catholic Church did not want that to happen and uh basically he was persecuted right so um the pope and other leaders received luther's attempts at reform as a threat a threat and unwilling to change they declared him to be a heretic luther took his uh, reform movement outside of the roman catholic church and so now we have a protestant branch of christianity in addition to the roman and catholic and eastern orthodox branches okay so um that now at this point in the reformation you get three denominations, right? So we've gone from one to two to three denominations. So um, this, and uh, let me point this out too. This is a sign, I think, of um, that this is the, so while this is the New Testament church history, and that's all great, another uh, phrase for New Testament church history that we could use is end times, right? We've been in the end times since Jesus has ascended into heaven and he promised he's coming back. And one of the things that happens in the end times when you read Jesus is that things get worse and worse, right? And so um, things start out pretty good in the apostolic age, right? Um, but 
there does end up being more and more corruption and more and more division in the church as time goes on. Um, that's why we go from uh, the first thousand years being one denomination to then 500 years being two denom 500 more years only being two denominations, and then in 15 uh, in the 1500s you get three denominations, and then from there you're going to get a lot of denominations pretty quickly, right? Um, relatively quickly. So. Um, that's what happens in the 1500s. Um, if you want, you can keep reading about the uh, American colonization with the Great Awakening um, in the 15 and 1600s, especially, and then the Enlightenment in the 17th through 19th centuries. Um, but what we're going to do next is we're going to dive into the Reformation. Um, and then we're going to analyze specifically Lutheranism, since this is the birth of Lutheranism. We're going to look at Lutheranism from then until now. So um, that will actually cover some of those other things that we didn't get to today. Um, but next uh, next week, no class. I'm going to be in Fort Wayne. But the week after that, when we come back, we're going to dive into the Reformation. So any questions or comments on church history? So that's our 10,000-foot view of the first 1,500 years. <laughs> All right, yeah. Yeah, from the, the Council of Nicaea yeah. to Constantinople, uh, you know, it's, it's quite a few years. It's a whole generation, you know. Right. I don't know, the average age was probably 40, maybe 50 years mm-hmm. before people died. So it was like a whole new generation. It wasn't, wasn't just thought of at one sit down and say, oh, okay, well, let's do this. No, it developed over the 50 years. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's an important point that, um, you know, it. it's funny, we think about the difference between, um, you know, say, the Apostle John and Constantine, we don't think of as that long. Oh, that's just a couple hundred years, right? Well, America is really only a couple hundred years old, right? Um, and and we look at you know the, we think about the founding fathers. We think, oh, that's that's forever ago. That's ancient, right? The founding fathers. But um, you know, it's important to kind of keep some of these years in mind. And um, that's that's one of the values of studying history, is it it really gives you a scope, uh, puts things into perspective. Let's say, right? And if you think about generations that you know of, right, like um, who uh, – oh, I was just talking to uh, the Hendersons today, and um, they, Dave Henderson was born in um, – shoot, I got it written down. It was in the 30s. He was born in the 30s, 1930s, and I'm like – I was just thinking like – and it's it's crazy to me, you know, how much change he's seen in his life, you know, in, in this in this country and um, – and how, like, really how narrow of a, like, slice of history that I have experienced. Um, if I, you know, just, just between the 1930s and now is incredibly different, right? And, but um, that, that's only, you know, however many years, right? However many decades. But then you start thinking about centuries and, um, go, and thousands of years and stuff and, uh, this, this this is a total side point, but um, that is why when you start to think about this age of the earth question, you really do start to doubt the um, you know 
old old earth evolutionist view it's like when when scientists talk about millions anytime someone brings up a million years i'm like you you don't really know what you're talking about right like gk chesterton uh he's a roman catholic theologian from a couple hundred years ago now uh maybe maybe not a couple hundred hundred years ago um he has this great line about prehistory where he says um i can't remember the exact quote but he's like prehistory is kind of a ridiculous thing right (laughs) it's like it's prehistory how do you know anything right you're just guessing so um anyway but like to even conceptualize what a million years is like is kind of impossible right and then they start just adding it up and they're like oh it's not a million it's seven million oh it's seven billion it's like okay what i mean like what does that even what does that even mean right um i don't know i i guess Maybe someone smarter than me can explain it, but that's kind of my non-scientific take on that. Is like, what even is seven billion? Like, I don't know what that looks like. I don't. I can't. That's a number you cannot conceptualize in your mind, right? Um. Anyway. All right. Yeah. Yep. All right. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have preserved your word throughout history and that you have brought it to us today here in this place that we might know your son, Jesus Christ, who has died and risen again for our salvation. Uh, We pray that you would help us to continue to learn from the past, uh, that we may go forward in the future, and that the gospel may have free course. We pray this through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.